Good morning. I forgot to bring my uh, Tibetan singing bowl, but uh, thank you. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Brian Powers, and uh, Bill Curley asked me to speak to you while he's uh, on vacation in England. And uh, I imagine that some of you are wondering, who is this guy, and, and what's he doing up here at the podium? So a little explanation is in order. Um, you could say that the reason that I'm here is Father Richard Rohr. Uh, you see a very good friend of mine, Bill Schreier, who's in the, in the front row here with his lovely wife, Lynn. Good morning, Lynn. Um, he's been a member of Ordinary Life for many years, and he strongly recommended that I come listen to Bill a few years ago, back before COVID started. Um, I'd been talking to Bill about how much I had been influenced by Richard Rohr. And he said, well, you should come hear Dr. Curley because he's very simpatico with Rohr. So the idea of coming over for some stimulating Sunday school um, was attractive, and I decided to come check it out. Well, in about 10 minutes, Bill Curley had quoted or mentioned Richard Rohr, Ilya Delio, James Finley, all of whom were mentors of mine and actually later were members of the faculty of the school I've been at. And I thought, this is a good place to be. A few months later, I was accepted as a student of the Living School. And I'm going to forget to use, uh, skip my slides here. So, um, Living School is at the Center of Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it was founded and led by Richard Rohr. The CAC is an educational nonprofit that introduces spiritual seekers to the contemplative Christian path of transformation. Richard's hope is that the rediscovery of the contemplative roots of Christianity will be a key to the future of our faith. Now, Bill Curley didn't know me back then, but when he found out that I'd been accepted into the living school, he came right up to me that day and said, someday you're going to teach a class here, <laughs> which at the time kind of floored me. Um, well, <laughs> I graduated from the school two days ago, and here I am. He didn't give me much time to digest it. Uh, during my studies at the Living School, we delved deeply into the writings of the Christian mystics over the last 2,000 years. We studied various contemplative practices, and we learned about moving from dualistic thinking, right or wrong, good or bad, either or, to non-dual consciousness both and, yes and no, paradox, mystery. So gradually, I've come to believe that we're all called to be mystics, that this is the natural next step in the evolution of human consciousness, and that it's the hope for the future of the world, a world full of violence and conflict. Okay, that's a pretty strong statement. So, this morning I'd like to explain what I mean by that. 
First, we need to clear up some big misconceptions about what we're talking about when we say mystic. Chances are, when someone pictures a mystic, they might imagine a yogi meditating on a mountaintop or a whirling dervish in Turkey. Uh, they might think of a nun living a monastic life of fervent prayer in a convent. They might picture stories of saints in ecstasy, levitating, performing miracles. For most Christians, the notion of the mystical life is far-fetched, ephemeral, misty, in a word, unreal. Nobody envisions a mystic grabbing a burger at McDonald's. Mysticism is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied words in the religious vocabulary. Part of the confusion has to do with the fact that the meaning of the word mystic has changed over time. Back in ancient Greece, the word mystic was tied to the word mystery. Back then, there were various cults that uh, they had secret knowledge that was imparted only to initi initiates considered worthy of such knowledge. But over the centuries, the meaning had more to do with those who avoided a brass profession of knowledge and instead were more attracted to the ineffable, to the mysterious and the awe-provoking encounter with ultimate reality, what many people call God. The modern definition of a mystic is someone who has the direct experience of a presence that is intuitively felt with the heart rather than explained with the mind and is filled with awe, peace, and love. This presence is often called God but has many names such as ultimate reality or the ground of all being. So this present is felt to be indwelling. So one could define mysticism, mysticism as the discovery of the divine indwelling in whom we live and breathe and have our being. The tendency is to think that God is somewhere out there, somewhere else. But the scriptures repeatedly tell us that Christ, God, is in us. So this is a partial list of passages in the writings of Paul that confirm that God is within us. But I think that John in his gospel says it best when he quotes Jesus saying, you will know that we are in seamless union with one another. I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So, if God is within us, why wouldn't it be natural that we would have access to the divine? Perhaps because it's hard to accept? Maybe we don't feel it's possible because we're not worthy? The thing is that this divine presence seeks connection and communion, longs for it. And so, sometimes, for a brief instant, we'll experience a taste of the presence. Sometimes it'll happen when we're out in nature, taking a hike. 
Sometimes it's when we look at a beautiful sunset or the stars or a picture from a telescope out in space. It may happen for an instant when we look into the eyes of a person we deeply love or look into the eyes of an infant. It may happen when we listen to a piece of great music or to lines of poetry that deeply resonate with us. I would venture to say that the vast majority of us have had those oh my god moments. Not the OMG on a text message, but the oh my god. Sadly, the perception exists among the great majority of Christians, including clergy, that contemplation and the mystical life are reserved for predestined saints, or for those rare few that live as cloistered nuns or monks. This stands in square opposition to the teaching and the tradition of the church. Jesus himself alludes to this when he teaches his disciples how to pray. This is the version from John. There's another version in Matthew. But basically, he says, go alone, close the door, bolt the door, and pray in silence and in secret. It's very personal. Um, don't keep babbling like the pagans. It's clear that Jesus was a mystic. He would go off to the mountains by himself, pray in stillness and silence, and thus he had an intimate relationship with the divine. So intimate, he called the divine Daddy, Abba. Paul had a mystical relationship with Christ. Knocked him off the horse. As did the Apostle John. And I strongly suspect that the majority of the early Christian community had a mystical relationship with the Lord. Which could be one explanation for the experience of resurrection by the first community of Jesus' followers that Bill's been examining for the last month. But as time went on and the Roman Empire co-opted the church, by making it the official religion, after viciously persecuting it for centuries, there were many Christians who became disgusted by the changes in the church. And they moved into the wilderness of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Cappadocia, to try to preserve the essence of Christianity. Called the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers of the fourth century, their writings have been preserved. These writings make it clear that all Christians have been called to direct experience of the divine through silence, stillness, and what they called the prayer of the heart, which is intuitive knowing rather than the intellectual activity of the mind. They taught that mystical life was nothing more and nothing less than the ordinary Christian life in full following, flowering. It was the normal development of the grace received at baptism. This emphasis on the universal call to direct experience of God, mysticism, 
is a treasure of our Christian tradition. Now, it's persisted in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and it continues there to this day. For hundreds of years, it was taught systematically in the monasteries, but began to decline significantly in Western Europe in the 13th century with the rise of scholasticism. Scholasticism was the system of theology and philosophy that sought to unite classic Greek logic with Christian theology. Its purpose was to use reason to support faith and to strengthen the church by the development of intellectual power. More and more, the universal call to mystical relationship with God was replaced with a demand to adhere to doctrine and dogma formulated by intellectual activity. Then, with the dawn of the Age of Reason, or the Enlightenment, in the late 17th century, rational activity of the mind was raised to the highest ideal, while spiritual experience was looked upon with suspicion and scorn. We still live in that age, an age that claims that mysticism is not universal. In fact, it's a cultural construct, and therefore, a contrivance. Even the church began to look upon mysticism as dangerous and to be avoided. One example of this is the persecution of the Quakers by the Church of England. The Quakers believed that we all possess what they call the inner light. We call it the Holy Spirit. And this inner light dwells within us. And they believe that we're called to foster direct experience of the divine by stillness and silence. That's why if you go to a Quaker meeting, it's pretty quiet. Therefore, one did not require an intermediary, such as the church, between God and man. Now, not surprisingly, this was considered a threat by the Church of England. A more modern example can be found in the story of John Maine, who was born in 1926 and died in 1982. He was born in London, became a Benedictine monk, but he was sent to Southeast Asia where he befriended a Buddhist monk who taught Maine how to meditate. John found meditation very helpful in his spiritual life, but when he returned to London, he was told by his abbot that he must stop the practice immediately because it was too oriental and against, against the teachings of the church. It was only years later in his research of the writings of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers that he found that early Christians practiced a form of silent prayer that was essentially identical to what he was taught by his Buddhist friends. John Maine went on to found an international organization promoting Christian meditation the World Community for Christian Meditation, which today has meditators in over 100 countries, including a group right here in Houston. Around the same time, another monk in Massachusetts, Thomas Keating, was discovering the same rich history of contemplative prayer in the early church that had been forgotten over the centuries. 
it turned out that his Christian monastery was right down the road from a Buddhist monastery. And so back in the 1970s, increasing numbers of men and women in their 20s and 30s were stopping by his monastery to ask directions to the Buddhist monastery. <laughs> and as he spoke to these young seekers, he was struck by their strong desire to find deeper meaning and a connection with ultimate reality. And he wondered, why isn't Christianity affording them what they were looking for? In the process, he discovered the ancient and deep roots of Christian contemplative prayer and meditation, just like John Main did in London. He founded an organization called Contemplative Outreach, which has chapters in over 30 states, um, including Texas, as well as international chapters. Both Contemplative Outreach and the World Community for Christian Meditation are examples of a resurgence in interest among everyday Christians for a deeper direct relationship with the divine. Christian contemplative communities recognize the early church's call to mystical life for everyone. Through the practice of contemplative prayer, we make ourselves available for a direct experience of the divine, the mystical experience. This policy this is gradually attracting more and more of the faithful. Now, there's a connection between mystical experience and spiritual maturity, which is something that Bill likes to talk about. Um, many ancient writers on mysticism agree that mystical experience tends to be rare and fleeting until one has reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. But you can look at it another way. By practicing contemplative prayer to make one available for mystical experience, one's also developing their spiritual maturity. And so before we look at contemplative prayer and what it looks like, let's take a brief look at spiritual maturity. And I think I haven't been skipping slides in a long time. Oh, no, okay. Many spiritual writers refer to a spirituality of the first half of life and a spirituality of the second half of life. And many of the ideas that I'm about to talk about come from a book written by my mentor, Richard Rohr, calling Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. The first and the second halves of life can look very different. It's no surprise because each has a different purpose or goal. It's been said that the purpose of the first half of life is to build a strong container or identity. And the purpose of the second half of life is to find the content that goes in that container. In general, during the first half of life, it's all about me and how can I survive successfully? So how can I be safe? How can I be important? How can I make money? How can I look attractive? We need to establish our own identity and find intimacy, meaning, self-worth, and a place that feels like home. Our institutions and our expectations, including our churches, are almost entirely configured to encourage, support, reward, and validate these tasks of the first half of life. 
So the first half of life is mostly about externals. Formulas, flags, badges, correct rituals, special clothing, Bible quotes, a lot of which largely substitutes for actual spirituality. The first half of life values law, tradition, custom, authority, boundaries, morality of some clear sort. And these containers give us the necessary security, continuity, predictability, impulse control, and ego structure that we need before the chaos of real life starts to show up. The ego can't be totally in charge throughout our early years, or it takes over. So laws and structure put up some kinds of limits to our infant grandiosity and prepare us for helpful relations in the outer world. Well, the first half of life spirituality tends to be pretty transactional. If I believe the right things and keep the commandments, then God will reward me with the good things in life and give me a ticket to heaven. Another reward is the satisfaction of, cer of the certainty that I am saved and morally upright. And this gives one the satisfaction of looking down on others who don't believe or do the same things that I do. The first half of life, spirituality, can become well-disguised narcissism. And if that becomes the case, it's not really about love at all. It can become tribal and exclude the other. It lets us hate the other. I love this quote from John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The transition from first half to second half of life usually requires some sort of falling. Sooner or later, some event, some person, a death, a relationship, an idea will enter your life that you simply cannot deal with using your present skill set, your acquired knowledge, or your strong willpower. We discover that we have spent our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find that when we get to the top, our ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. The supposed achievements of the first half of life have to fall apart and show themselves to be wanting in some way, or we won't move any further. We need to learn that the language, the concepts, and the assumptions of the first half of life and those of the second half are two different worlds. Spiritually seeking, you will be, you must be, led to the edge of your own private resources. But the good news is that God and grace can move us into the second half of life. We can achieve something that the mystics called proficiency, a state wherein we have achieved an essential maturity, a basic peace, a sense of self-worth, and an essential unselfishness. 
In the second half of life, it's good to be part of the general dance. We don't have to stand out, make defining moves, or be better than anybody else on the dance floor. Life is more participatory than assertive. There's no need for a strong or further self-definition. We can become the quiet, blessing grandparent who no longer needs to be the center of attention, but is happy simply watching the young grow and enjoy themselves. We no longer have to prove that our group is the best, that our ethnicity is superior, that our religion is the only one that God loves, or that our place in society deserves special treatment. We're not preoccupied with collecting more goods. Quite simply, our desire and our effort is to pay back, to give back to the world a bit of what we received. The spiritual task of the second half of life is to let go. We have to shed many things we legitimately acquired and attached ourselves during the first half of life. From what do we have to detach ourselves? First and most importantly, from our wounds and our anger. We need to forgive others, ourselves, life, God. In the second half of life, we no longer have to use the ego-driven logic of right or wrong, with me or against me. Dualistic thinking like that was very useful in the first half of life, since compare and contrast mode provides survival skills and helps define boundaries. But now, non-dualistic thinking like yes, but also no, or this, but also that, helps us live with ambiguity, with paradox, with contradiction, and with mystery. We also need more and more to immerse ourselves in the language of silence. It's hard to get silence these days. Um, Meister Eckhart once said, nothing so much resembles God as silence. Comfort with paradox, comfort with silence, comfort with not being the center of attention, comfort with letting go of righteousness and certainty, all indicate a certain level of spiritual maturity. At this stage of spiritual maturity, religion becomes much more a mystical matter rather than a moral matter. It's now more about union with all and participation in and with God. Now we get to the question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Does one have to reach this level of spiritual maturity in order to have mystical experience? Clearly, the answer to that one is no. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, almost everyone has rare, fleeting experiences of the direct connection with the divine, the oh my God experience. But what about trying to habituate that mystical experience? Instead of rare and fleeting experience, how about making that a regular and normal part of your life? 
If the regular practice of some sort of contemplative practice can do that, does one have to have already achieved a level of spiritual maturity that we just talked about in order to do it? I think the answer is a qualified no. What I mean by that is that if someone has developed more spiritual maturity, the contemplative practice will come more easily to them compared to someone who's just setting out on their spiritual journey. But the good news is, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, <laughs> you can learn the practice of contemplation. And by the practice of contemplation, you will make great strides along your spiritual journey towards spiritual maturity. Dr. Curley loves to remind us that we all need a daily spiritual practice. This morning I'm going to talk about one in particular, centering prayer. Now, any form of meditation is essentially about putting a stick into the spokes of our normal whirling wheel of thinking in order to break the tyranny of the mind and the sense of selfhood that goes with that. Thomas Keating rather humorously describes the process as taking a brief vacation from yourself. All meditation practices share this basic aim, but centering prayer has a very distinct angle of approach. Generally speaking, the various types of meditation can be divided into three main groups concentrative methods, awareness methods, and surrender methods. Centering prayer belongs to the last and the least common category. Concentrative methods involve giving the mind a simple task to focus its attention on, most commonly reciting a mantra over and over. A mantra being a word or a short phrase of sacred origin and intent used to collect the mind and invoke the divine presence. Awareness methods, much favored in Buddhist practice, um, one aligns oneself with an inner observer and simply watches the play of energy as thoughts and emotions arise and dissipate. For example, if a thought emerges Instead of getting tangled up in it, one simply watches it, maybe labels it, and lets it go away. The third type of meditation, the surrender method, is even simpler. One doesn't watch or even label the thought. As soon as the thought emerges, one simply lets it go. The intention is to be totally open and available to God. The deal is, if you catch yourself thinking, you let the thought go. <laughs> of course, this is not easy, <laughs> especially at first. You'll sit down in your prayer space with the lofty intention of making yourself totally available to God. And then, not 20 seconds later, you'll catch yourself deeply embroiled in some mental or emotional scenario, replaying the argument you had with your spouse that morning pondering what to have for dinner tonight. 
wondering if you remembered to lock the car. Monkey mind. The method of centering prayer begins with the reassurance, this is all perfectly normal. If you find yourself tangled up with a thought, you simply, gently let the thought go. You release it to get back to your original intention, which was to maintain that bare, formless openness to God. Letting go of a thought is a powerful symbol of our willingness to let go of our stuff and to return to being open to attending upon God. Now, to make this method a little bit easier to apply, a final nuance is added. The release of a thought is accomplished with the help of what is known as a sacred word. A sacred word is a word that you choose yourself that symbolizes your willingness to do the deal. It's the spiritual equivalent of a little piece of red string tied around your finger. It reminds you to simply and promptly to let go of whatever thought you're thinking and to return to that intent to be totally open to God. So, you go to your sacred place, a place you won't be disturbed. You sit down in your chair, close your eyes, you become aware of your feet on the ground. You take some intentional breaths, and you silently collect yourself around your intention with a short prayer, such as, Here I am, Lord. And then you start to say your sacred word, silently, gently, repeating it as the thoughts inevitably come along. At first, it will seem like all you're doing is repeating your word, because the thoughts never stop. But gradually, the thoughts will begin to quiet down. It becomes a little easier to let go of them. And you'll notice you're not being attracted to your thoughts as much as you were at first. And eventually you can let go of your word. This makes it different than a mantra. A mantra, you keep going with the word again and again and again. But of course the question comes up, well, how can you notice without thinking? How can you decide to drop the word without itself being a thought? It's difficult to explain, but actually, there's a simple magic going on here. The word just drops out. It's similar to the process of falling asleep. You can't see the moment you actually drift off to sleep. It just happens. You don't notice the moment you stop thinking. What you do notice is the moment you start thinking. And so you return to your sacred word. And on and on it goes for 20 minutes, which is the recommended amount of time. It's also recommended that you have some sort of timer so you're not peeking at the clock all the time. At first, shorter periods might be a good idea, say five or 10 minutes, and then gradually work up to 20 minutes. 
Now, after the prayer time's over, it'll seem like the only thing that happened during that 20 minutes is that you struggled with thoughts. You might have a sense of refreshment. You might not. You might ask, well, what about these mystical experiences of union with God? Thomas Keating advised over and over again that the fruits of centering prayer at first are in your daily life. They express themselves in the ability to be more present in your life, to be more flexible, more forgiving, to be more honest and comfortable with yourself. These are the signs that the inner depths have been touched and have begun to set in motion the transformation work. There's a true story that I love of a couple who attended a talk on Christian meditation, kind of like today. And after the talk, the woman told her husband that she was going to give Centering a Prayer a try. The husband replied, he thought it would all sound like mumbo-jumbo. Well, several months went by, and his wife continued the practice of centering prayer. And one morning over breakfast, as her husband sat with the newspaper in front of his face, she was shocked when he asked, can you teach me how to do that centering stuff? She said, why? He said, because I've seen you've changed. And I want some of that. From the earliest days of Christian theological reflection comes the concept of something called kenosis, or self-emptying. It encapsulates the core gesture of Jesus' life. St. Paul sets forth the principle of kenosis in his beautiful hymn in Philippians 2, prefacing his comments by saying, Let what was seen in Christ be also seen in you. And this is what Paul says. Though his state was that of God, yet he did not claim equality with God, something that he should cling to. Rather, he emptied himself and assumed the state of a slave. And he was born into human likeness. And being known as one of us, he humbled himself obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So Paul sees that self-emptying is the core reality underlying every moment of Jesus' human journey. Self-emptying is what first brings him into human form, and self-emptying is what leads him out. What does that have to do with centering prayer? Plenty. Of all the forms of meditation, it most purely approximates the meditational kenosis. It's pure self-emptying. In the process of repetitively letting go of our thoughts, one is willingly giving up their personal consciousness out of love in order to be totally present and available to the divine. Slowly, steadily, centering prayer patterns into practitioners, what I would call the quintessential Jesus response. 
the meeting of any and all life situations by the complete free giving of oneself. So often, what we think of centering prayer or any form of meditation is alone, withdrawn, or focused on one's own personal development or special relationship with God. And it's true that the practice of centering prayer will change you. You'll develop a warm and a softer heart. Uh, the ability to be really present to yourself and to others will get better. And there'll be a deepening sense of wonder about all of creation. And you might even become a mystic. You may really feel the presence of the divine in a deeply interior, personal way. Not only during your prayer time, but when you take a walk in the woods, or stare at the stars at night, or have a cup of coffee in the morning. But another thing that happens gradually as we undergo this personal transformation is a growing realization of how connected we are to the rest of humanity and with the rest of creation. We begin to understand the secret of Jesus' great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of the usual interpretation, which means love them as much as yourself, one really gets he means as yourself, interchangeably one, as the great vine and the branches that Jesus describes in the Gospel of John, or which Paul calls the mystical body of Christ. So a shift occurs. No longer is it just about my personal salvation. There's an increasing compassion for others. Because if we deeply encounter the divine, and the divine is love, well then we naturally desire to express that love in all that we do. Our growth in love not only deepens our love for ourselves and for those close to us, but to the other to those on the margins of society, and maybe even to our enemies. One thing that's increasingly clear is that all of creation is continuously evolving. Whether it's the latest strain of coronavirus, the climate on our planet, or the movement of our galaxy towards a neighboring galaxy. Creation is constantly evolving. I believe that human consciousness is also evolving. My hope is, as that more and more humans transform their consciousness through forms of contemplative practice, that we have the potential for direct experience of the divine. In other words, mystical experience and when that happens, we'll see a decrease in the conflict and the violence in the world. In the meantime, the mystical life can awaken us to the miracles of ordinary life. It can fill you with awe and wonder and a life full of adventure. And thank you for listening.